to the Gospel of John. What happened to our old slide? We have a different Gospel of John logo image thing. You don't have to tell me now. You can tell me later. Okay, we're back in John's Gospel. And as we pick back up in John's Gospel, we find Jesus still in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, tradition tells us that during this time, it was the custom of the Jews to light four huge lamps in the temple court, and then they would throw a party under these huge lamps every night of the festival. One commentator puts it like this, Men of piety and good works danced through the night, holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs and praises. The Levitical orchestras cut loose with the light of the temple area shedding its glow all over Jerusalem. It was within this context that Jesus would stand up and declare to all of God's people present in the temple, I am the light of the world. Look at verse 12 of chapter 8. And again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is making a very public and very serious identity claim. An identity claim that we're going to explore later in the sermon. But what I want you to notice right now, what I want you to see coming down the road is that the Jews that Jesus is talking to, particularly those who are opposed to Jesus, they can't even comprehend the claim that Jesus is making because they're so busy trying to catch him slipping. They're trying to find him making a mistake. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, the significance of the statement is completely lost on them. It doesn't even register with them because they're so busy trying to catch Jesus in a lie or contradiction. Look at verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. You may not remember what's going on here, but the Pharisees are recalling an event that happened back in chapter 5, where Jesus was talking to his detractors and he said, listen guys, if I'm just up here bearing witness to myself, my testimony would be worthless. And now the, the opponents of Jesus, they remember Jesus saying that with the recall and memory, second only to a wife in a heated argument with her husband, right? They remember exactly what he said, and now they're going to bring it up and use it against him. They think. Look at verse 18. Here's Jesus' response to that claim. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Jesus says, okay, so... If you're counting, that's two witnesses. The Pharisees characteristically misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. They take him literally, right? They ask him, well, where is your father then if your father bears witness about you? And well, if you remember how John's gospel goes, this is a pretty consistent theme. Jesus is speaking to people at a spiritual level, but his hearers only hear him 
at a carnal level. Remember, Jesus said, I'll destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Or no, excuse me, if you destroy this temple, it'll be rebuilt in three days. And well, they thought he was talking about the literal temple. Jesus said, you must be born again. And everyone was like pulling out their biology textbooks and trying to figure out how you could be born again. Jesus says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And they're like, where is this food? We're really hungry. Just over and over again, they don't understand what Jesus is saying. Now, this interaction at the very outset of chapter 8 is the spark that sets the rest of chapter 8 on fire. Here's the thing about chapter 8. It's very dense. It's one of the richest chapters in John's gospel. There is so much goodness to see here from the nature of Christ, the Christ's nature, Christology, the, the Trinity, a, a right understanding of salvation and sin and grace. Uh, we could spend the next three months studying John's gospel here together, but we're not going to. We're going to spend the next 45 minutes trying to wrap our arms around John chapter 8. So here's what you need to know. There are two main themes that run through this chapter. There are two thick ropes for us to grab onto to understand this chapter. The first main theme is Jesus's identity. The second main theme is belief in Jesus. And it all comes together in verse 24. Look at verse 24 with me. Jesus says, <clears throat> I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So, let me just set the bar as high as possible for our time together in the Word this morning. Let me tell you that this may be the most important sermon you ever hear. If you're a visitor, I'm glad you're here. I want you to know that God providentially brought you here this morning to hear what I have to say to you from His Word. If you're a member of this church, I want you to know that God providentially brought you here this morning for you to hear what I have to say to you from His Word. Everyone in this room could have been somewhere else this morning. You could have gotten sick on the way in. You could have worked late last night and not been able to drag out of bed this morning and make it to church. Your roof could have caved in. A thousand different things could have happened last night or this morning on the way to church to keep you from being here, and yet here you are. Why? Because God wants you to hear from his word the truth that in Christ, Jesus has loved, uh, excuse me, in Christ, God has loved you and made a way for you to not die in your sins. That is what John chapter 8 is all about. So let's dig in. Point number one. The identity of Jesus. Jesus says in this text that the only way that we can avoid dying in our sins is if we believe in him. That's what it says right there in verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe. Well, believe in Jesus how? What does that mean? It's, it feels like this kind of amorphous concept. But it's a pretty important concept because if you don't believe, you'll die in your sins. 
What does that even mean? I mean, the demons believe in Jesus, do they not? And will they not die in their sins? So what's going on here? Well, the wording is right there in verse 24. It says, unless you believe that I am He. Now, at first glance, this language may not mean very much to us, but it's actually loaded with significance. This language, I am He, it's the language that Yahweh uses all throughout the Old Testament when referring to Himself as the Savior and God of Israel. So let's just, let's just look at that together. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 41. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41, verse 4. Yahweh speaking, he says, Who has performed and done this? Calling the generation from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am He. Now look up at verse 10. Excuse me, uh, verse 10 of chapter 43. 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declare the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, There is no Savior. Now flip on over to chapter 48. Look at verse 12. Speaking to Israel, Yahweh says, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am He. I am the first, and I am the last. So now as we go back to John chapter 8, it should really blow our mind. It should, it should boggle us that Jesus' enemies are unable to comprehend what he's putting down. They totally miss it. Jesus uses this very loaded language. He says, I am he, and the Jews respond in verse 25 by saying, who are you? Look at verse 25. Chapter 8, verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? <laughs> well, guys, are you, are you not paying attention? I, I literally just told you. And not only that, but if, you, if you've been paying attention, Jesus has already told them much earlier than this I am he statement. He told them all the way back in verse 12. He said, I'm the light of the world. But they couldn't hear him when he was using this metaphor. This loaded metaphor, this very significant metaphor. What you need to understand about this light metaphor is that it's not just one among many metaphors that Jesus uses to describe himself. No, it's, it's a very significant metaphor. In the Old Testament, whenever Yahweh is describing himself to his people as their God and as their Savior, one of his favorite metaphors to use is the metaphor of light. I'll just share some examples with you. We all know the story of 
uh, Israel being led through the desert, right, by the pillar of cloud and fire. What does that fire do? It emanates light in the darkness to lead God's people through the darkness. And God says, I am in the pillar. Psalm chapter 8, 28. For it is you, O Lord, who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. The psalmist says in Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Light there is used synonymously with salvation. Psalm 44, 3. For by their own sword they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them. All right, well then, who did save them? But your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence favored them. Psalm 119, 105. Your word, which is God, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Isaiah chapter 60. The sun shall be no more. Your light by day, not for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord your God will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory, and your sun shall no more go down, your moon will not withdraw itself. Why? For the Lord will be your everlasting light. Are you guys seeing this? Are you, are you getting it? If, if you're not, I don't know what else to do. <laughs> I don't know what else to say, you know, it's just, it's right there. Anyone who doesn't see it seems to have to be wanting to not see it, which is the point. All over the Old Testament, Yahweh tells his people, I am the light. And then Jesus stands up in front of God's people in God's holy temple and he says, I am the light. And they go, now, what are you, what are you trying to tell us? The authors of the New Testament understood exactly what Jesus was saying. First Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race. That's us, this, this church, right? We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. First John 1 John 1.5, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Man, Sean, I really wish you had like a proof verse. What? When Jesus says, I'm I'm the light of the world, he's saying, I'm I'm God. (laughs) And his enemies, they just can't hear him. We'll talk about why they can't hear him in point number two. Now, as Jesus argues with his detractors for what's essentially just the rest of the chapter, what he does is he reveals his divine identity over and over again. And he he does this thing where first he says it this way, and then he says it that way, and then he says it another way, but it never registers. But let me just give you the highlights. If you want to kind of mark this in your Bible, we're not going to read them, but I'll just tell you. Chapter 8, verse 16, Jesus says that he and the Father are co-judges, which is, you know, something that only God can do, right? In verse 18, Jesus and the Father are co-witnesses. In verse 19, Jesus says, to know me is to know the Father. 
right? He's saying that he and the Father are one and the same. In verse 28, Jesus says he only speaks the words of God, which is a claim to be God. In verse 29, Jesus and God are with each other in his ministry. Everything that he claims to do, he claims to be doing on behalf of God. In verse 29, Jesus says that he only and always does that which is pleasing to the Father. You know what you call someone who only and always does that which is exactly right and true? God. Verse 42, Jesus says explicitly, I come from God. Verse 54, the Father glorifies Jesus. That may not really register with you when uh, Jesus says the Father glorifies me, but if you just read your Bibles, you'll know that the Lord God of Israel is a jealous God and he shares his glory with no one because no one else deserves it. The only person who deserves glory is God the Father. Excuse me, is God. And God the Father glorifies God the Son, which is saying a lot, a whole lot, about who the Son is. So, Jesus over and over again is saying, I am God. He says, I'm one with God. I speak for God. I am God, but they don't get it. That is, until they do. Look at verses 56 through 59. Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And man, that's a whole sermon right there. (laughs) Abraham was looking forward to the day when the promises of God would be fulfilled, when, when his covenant would be fulfilled in Jesus. But it says, he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, uh, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus himself uh, hid himself and went out of the temple. Here's what you need to understand. The fuse of Jesus' identity has been burning all the way through this chapter. And then right here at the very end of the chapter, the bombshell of who Jesus is explodes in the face of his enemies. Now why does it finally explode? Well, the idea is simple. Jesus uses this I am language. He essentially uses the name of God for himself. You remember when when Moses is at the burning bush and he's saying, well, you know, who are you? Who should I tell them sent me? And Yahweh says, tell them that I am sent you. When the Jews hear Jesus use this language, there's no more confusion. There's no more blurriness. Everything in the frame snaps into focus. No more metaphors, no more ambiguity, no more confusion. This man, Jesus, he's claiming to be God. And in verse 25, they said, who are you, right? Who are you then if we must believe in you? In verse 58, Jesus tells them plainly, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham. When the Jews hear this, they pick up stones to stone him. Now let's pause. Remember the heartbeat of this text. It's verse 24. Those who don't believe in Jesus, that Jesus is he, they will die in their sins. And I think it's safe to say that if you pick up stones to try and kill Jesus, 
you don't believe in him. Now, before we move on to point two and examine why it is that Jesus' enemies don't believe in him, in fact, cannot believe in him, we should just stop and ask a fairly simple yet obvious question. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe Jesus when he says that he's the light of the world? Do you believe Jesus when he says, I am he? Do you believe Jesus when he says that he is one with the Father, when he says, even before Abraham was, I am? Now, listen, you might be thinking, well, Sean, come on now. Come on. Isn't this a little silly? Of course I do. Look where you are. You're in a church gathering. This is a room full of people who are here on a Sunday morning when they could be out chasing Pokemons at the, at the park or having coffee at High Point, right? We're all here, Sean, because we do believe in Jesus. Maybe. Maybe. Which leads us to point two, believing in Jesus. Look at verse 30. After Jesus kind of riffs on his identity for a little while, John, the the author of this gospel, the narrator of the story, he tells us, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. You know, uh, John chapter 8, it's pretty dark. And given the grim gray skies of John 8, this verse feels like a ray of sunshine breaking through the storm clouds. And yet, it's, it's not. I know we spent a, lot, a long time in Judges, and we may, not have, we may have forgotten kind of the warp and the woof of John's gospel, but the way that John's gospel works is that whenever crowds of people profess faith in Jesus, that faith is suspect. We've seen it four or five times already leading up to chapter 8. Whenever the masses profess faith in Jesus in John's gospel, it's always fickle. It's always more akin to emotional excitement or even intellectual assent than true, trusting, saving faith. And John 8 is no different. The professions of faith right here in verse 30, they're actually not genuine. And I can show you from the text if you're like, well, he says they believe, Sean. What do you mean they don't believe? It's not real. Well, I'll just show you from the text, okay? So uh, let's, let's start by looking at verse 31. Look at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. So what am I trying to show you here? In verse 31, I'm trying to show you that all the dialogue that comes after this, where Jesus scathingly rebukes people, He's talking to the Jews who professed to believe in him. Do you guys see that? Okay, just keep that in mind. He doesn't change who he's talking to as as the text goes on. Now look at verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. Speaking to the people who professed faith in Jesus, he says, actually, you guys are trying to kill me. And the reason why you're trying to kill me is because my words, the truth of God that I speak to you, it it doesn't register. It it can't root itself down in your heart. The soil's not right. And this, of course, should draw your uh, mind back to the parable of the sower, right? There are all these different kinds of soil representing the human heart. And, And the seed of God's word falls in all these different soils that are bad and 
And sometimes it appears to pop up and bear fruit, but it's, it's, it's actually not real. The, the profession of faith that we see with some of these soils is not genuine. And Jesus says the same thing in verse 40. He says, you're trying to kill me. Then in verse 44, Jesus says that these same people are of their father, the devil. Look there. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. The, the point is, is that Jesus is saying, listen, you guys who want to kill me, you want to kill me because you're just imitating your dad and he's a murderer and he's been trying to kill me since the beginning. He hasn't been able to do that, so he's killed the next best thing, human beings who are created in my image and likeness. And then you see something pretty incredible in verses 45 through 47. Just go back and start in verse 45 again. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God, right? So now we think, right, we think it's the exact opposite, but Jesus says, no, actually the reason why you can't believe is because you don't belong to God. We think believing is what makes you belong to God. Jesus says, well, actually, it's the opposite. So throughout all of this, we've seen Jesus' detractors unable to hear him, and that doesn't mean that, like, their ears don't work. No, they hear him. They can't hear him. They can't believe in the words that he's saying, and Jesus finally tells them why. It's because you don't belong to God. You belong to Satan. <clears throat> this is a good time to point out the way that we talk here at Sixth Avenue. If you've been around for a while, if you've been a member, you probably noticed the very measured language we use when we talk about people's professions of faith, right? We use language like, you know, they, they, they seem to be saved. We hope that they're saved. They've professed faith in Christ. And we use this measured language uh, particularly in relation to whenever people come into the church or when they go out of the church. That's in relation to church membership and church discipline. And the reason why we use this measured language is because we understand this phenomenon from John chapter 8. We understand that people can profess faith in Christ and be deceived. And they can deceive other human beings. And we are other human beings. It's possible that we can be deceived. I can't look into your heart and see if your heart is truly regenerated. My eyes don't double as x-ray machines. But Jesus, Jesus, he has the x-ray machine eyes, right? Remember those comic book glasses that you could, you could order and, that you get the, and they had like the swirls on them and they could help you see through things? Yeah, well, that's not real. You can't do that. It'd be really cool if it was. But Jesus, he really can do that and he doesn't need the glasses, and as he evaluates this profession of faith from these people, he says, it doesn't seem like your faith is genuine. Which leads us to another obvious question. Why don't these people believe? Well, Jesus gives five reasons by my count. Maybe you can go back and reread this this afternoon and prove me wrong. Whatever gets you reading the text again this afternoon is good. In verse 34, Jesus says, you can't believe because you're slaves to sin. In verse 37, Jesus says, you can't believe because your hearts are dead. In verse 45, Jesus says, you can't believe because you hate the truth. 
in verse 44, and then again in verse 47, Jesus says, you can't believe because you're of the father, the devil. And then he says the same thing, just kind of in, in the opposite way. In verse 47, again, he says, you can't believe because you're not of God. Now, what you see here is the same teaching technique that Jesus used back in point one. Remember when Jesus was revealing his identity? He said it one way, and then he said it another way, and he used this metaphor and that illustration, and he's just saying the same thing all different kinds of ways to help you understand, and yet they don't. And Jesus is doing the same thing here. He says, you don't believe for this reason, and let me say it like this, and let me say it like that. But it's all communicating the same idea, which is this, unbelievers don't believe in Jesus because they cannot believe in Jesus because they belong to Satan. Now remember how this whole thing got started. Jesus made an identity claim, right? Then the Jews attacked him for his identity claim, and then Jesus responded in verse 18 by saying, the Father bears witness to me. Now what does that language mean, bear witness? It means that the Father affirms Jesus' identity claim. Jesus says, I am this, and God says, you're you're darn right you are, right? That's my boy. What he says is true. Said another way, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now, lock in on this part. It's really important, like really important. Jesus says, I am from the Father, therefore I tell you the truth. Then he tells his enemies, you are not from the Father, therefore you reject the truth. Right? You can see this encapsulated perfectly in verse 38. Look there. <clears throat> I speak of what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. <clears throat> Jesus is employing a really simple metaphor, and it's this, children imitate their fathers. Sons imitate their dads, right? So Jesus is saying, I am from my father, God, and I imitate him because God is a truth teller. So I'm here right now in front of you telling you the truth. And then he says something very offensive. He says, you are of your father, Satan, and because you're imitating your dad, you do what he does, and what he does is reject the truth. Satan is so bent on trying to reject the truth that he wants to kill the one from whom all, so, all truth flows, God himself. <clears throat> I'm going to do my best to imitate my father this morning. And I'm going to tell you that if you're here and if you're not a believer, the truth of the matter is, is that you do not belong to God. You belong to Satan. And I know that that's very offensive. (laughs) I cannot imagine anything more offensive that I could say to you this morning. If you're here and you're investigating the gospel or you're kind of struggling and you're wrestling with the truth claims of this religion and that religion, you came here this morning maybe to hear something about the Christian faith that would draw you in and lead you to God. And here I stand in this pulpit telling you that you are a child of Satan. I understand that's probably not what you would expect. But I want to ask you, what, what, what should I say? I mean, I'm just trying to imitate God and telling you the truth about yourself, literally just what Jesus does. And so 
Really, this isn't even a question of what I should say. This is a question of what you think God should be like. What should God be like in your mind? If not like this, if, if he shouldn't say the kinds of things that Jesus says in John 8, if he shouldn't do the kinds of things that Jesus does in his ministry, what should he do? What should he say? If God is God, which would make him morally perfect, and if we're human, which would make us morally imperfect, what should God say to us? How should God interact with us? You know, the thing that's funny is we hate it when God speaks so frankly and plainly to us, but we love it when other human beings do it, right? You know, you take Martin Luther King or some other moral exemplar, you know, Gandhi or some random moralist on Twitter, you know, in 140 characters really sticking it to you, sticking it to other human beings. We love it when they do that. We say, oh man, that's good. We need to hear that, right? We need to be challenged. We need to do better. But then here comes God telling us the absolute truth about ourselves. And we find it grotesque. We find it offensive. It makes us angry. So angry that maybe if he were here now telling us these things, we would pick up a stone to stone him. I don't know how you've come to think of Jesus if you're not a believer, but my guess is you probably haven't heard anybody tell you the story of Jesus when he tells all the people who claim to believe in him that, in fact, they're a bunch of devil worshipers. That's probably not one of the most commonly told stories in the Bible. And yet it is right here that we get to the heart of the matter. Jesus is who God's word says he is. Jesus is not who you would like him to be. Oh, I would prefer if my Jesus were less offensive. I'm sure you would. And yet he is who he is. When the gospel says that you must believe in Jesus in order to be saved, it's talking about this Jesus. Not just the Jesus who heals sick people. you got to love that Jesus, right? Not just the Jesus who confronts the religious hypocrites. Come on, that's our favorite Jesus, isn't it? Don't we hate religious hypocrites? And good thing we're not hypocritical. That would be bad. Not just the Jesus who cares for the poor, right? We like that Jesus because he's doing the stuff that we're not really doing like we should be doing. But if we believe in him, it makes us feel like we're doing it, right? Just like when you hit retweet, you know? Ah, I, I couldn't say it, but man, you did. So it's just the, if I retweet, it's the same as if I'm saying it. When Jesus says that you must believe in him, he, must, he means that you must believe in all of him. Not just the lamb, but also the lion. Not just the gentle Jesus, but also the wrathful Jesus. Not just the accommodating Jesus, but also the in-your-face truth-teller Jesus. Not just the Savior of the world, but also the judge of the world. The judge of the world that makes salvation necessary in the first place. Friends, you have to know this. A God of your own understanding cannot save you. Because a God of your own understanding is just a reflection of you. If God reflects you, that's not God. Thank God that it's not God. A stripped down, gutted out Jesus just will not do. A, a choose your own adventure storybook Jesus cannot save anyone. A malleable Mr. Potato Head Jesus that you can sort of rearrange to make him look like you want him to look 
is not a Jesus who can save anyone from their sins. The God of the Bible, Jesus, is eternal, immovable, unchangeable. And he loves us so much that he has come to us. He hasn't just left us groping in the dark so that we can try to figure out what he's like. He's revealed himself to us. God the Father has revealed himself to us by the power of God the Spirit in the person and work of God the Son. And then he left us an account of that revelation. It's all right here. If you want to have any hope of not dying in your sins, you must believe in this Jesus. Not the socialist Jesus, not the Republican Jesus, not the hippie Jesus, certainly not the Mormon Jesus, the Jehovah's Witness Jesus, the Prosperity Gospel Jesus, the Roman Catholic Jesus, not your denomination's version of Jesus, this Jesus. This Jesus was fully God and fully man. It's right there at the front of your worship guide. I don't know how often you look at it, but we have a new catechism question every week in God's providence. Here it is. What sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? One who is truly human and truly God. This Jesus, he came to earth and lived the perfect life that you could never live in obedience to the Father. This Jesus took on sin and death on the cross so that you might live in him. This Jesus was hated for telling us the truth about ourselves. Hated so much that he was killed. He was buried. And wouldn't this be a sorry gospel if that's where it stopped? (laughs) But this Jesus was also raised in three days, victorious over sin and hell and death. And he now sits at the right hand of the Father. And this Jesus will one day come back and render a judgment on the living and the dead. And he will tell us the truth about ourselves, the unvarnished truth. You may be sitting there uncomfortable right now saying, Sean, I wish you'd stop. But I'm trying to, in causing some discomfort to you right now, prevent you from experiencing some very, very, very significant discomfort on the last day. Some might call it pain. When the full truth of who you are is revealed. And God's grace has come to you this morning. He's brought you here in this room to tell you that if you believe in this Jesus, when you meet him again on the last day, you will not be found dead in your sins. You will be made alive together with him and you will enjoy God forever. Now, I want to spend some time talking to the members of Sixth Avenue. I want you to know that this passage is a warning to us. It's a warning to us. The Jews who professed faith in Jesus, they had, and I cannot overemphasize this enough, rock-solid confidence that they were good with God. You know, thumbs up, everything is good, copacetic, we're on great terms. They were saying things like in verse 39, Abraham is our father. They were saying things in verse 41, like God is our father. 
But in verse 42, Jesus talks to them and he says, if God were your father. And then in verse 54, he says, you say he is your God. Obviously implying that he's not your God. Guys, there's a category creation that needs to take place here. This is the category you need to have in your minds and hearts as Christians. That it is possible that according to Jesus, it is possible for you to profess belief in him and to be totally and completely deceived. Wrong. Dead wrong. Jesus says to the Jews who profess to believe in him, you do not believe in me. It's very important to have this category built into your Christian understanding of how you're supposed to live your life. Because if you don't, you're going to mess up all kinds of things. One example would be you'll reject things in the Bible. Things like church discipline. The very good gift of church discipline. Church discipline is given to us by Jesus as a built-in institutional mechanism in the church to recognize when this stuff happens, to recognize false conversions, people who just got excited and carried away, and they said that they believed in Jesus, but then later it would prove to be false. Well, what do we do when that happens? Church discipline is God's answer. It's loving for the church, it's loving for the world, and it's loving to that person who's deceived to point out their deception. Just turn with me to Matthew 18 real quick. I want to show you something. Matthew chapter 18. You guys know how this goes. You've been here for a while. If, starting in verse 15, if a brother sins, you go to him one-on-one, you confront him, you act as a witness against him, right? You point out his sin, and if he responds, fantastic, you've gained your brother. And then if he doesn't listen, well, what do you do? Verse 16, you take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile, And as a tax collector, that is, put him out of the church and treat him like someone who doesn't actually believe. What do you see here? You see that the church is called to act as witnesses, as it were. As someone's faith is put on trial. Why is it being put on trial? Because, well, you profess to believe, but brother, you're saying things and doing things that lead us to believe that you're deceived. Jesus is not physically, bodily present here with us. If Jesus were physically, bodily present here with us, we wouldn't need church discipline. We'd just be like, Jesus, <laughs> tell us the truth about ourselves, right? We're a bunch of people who profess faith in you. Are we deceived? And he'd, you know, use his Jesus x-ray vision. He'd look into our hearts. He'd set, check to see if we're truly converted, and he'd tell us the truth. But Jesus isn't here physically, bodily, but he is here He is manifestly present in us, in the church. We are the representation of Christ on the earth. And so the same ability that Jesus had to determine, to discern, whether or not someone's profession of faith is genuine is the ability that he has now given to the church. 
in a church that does not exercise this, it's going to be bad. It's going to be real bad. We could talk about other things. We could talk about the way that if you don't have this category built into your Christian life, the way you evangelize is going to be, man, cattywampus just doesn't feel like a strong enough word, which is probably why I didn't include it in my manuscript. Your evangelism practices are going to be bad, right? An example of this is a church that practices altar calls. Well, hold up now, Sean. I got saved at an altar call. Well, praise God for that. God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines all the time. That doesn't mean we should love crooked sticks. Altar call evangelism is not in the Bible. It was invented a few hundred years ago, and it is bad. It encourages easy believism. It encourages easy, light professions of faith. Are you emotionally stimulated by what I've said and the music that's been playing and the ambiance in this room? Not in this room, I know that. (laughs) Not with this carpet. If so, please come on down and let me have you repeat after me. Well, if that is how you got saved, I praise God that you are saved. That does not mean that I celebrate the way that you were saved. And I want to point out something (laughs) And I'm not going to go off on a tangent here. Lord, help me. Y'all keep me, bear witness against me. Have you ever noticed that you never find a church that practices that kind of evangelism, altar calls? Those kinds of churches never do church discipline. Why is that? Because it's all about getting people in. It's opening the door as wide as possible. It's come on down. Yes, you're a Christian. If you say you're a Christian... If that church practiced church discipline, they would have to excommunicate 50% of their membership on an annual basis. And when you treat church like a business, that is a bad business model. I could go on, but let me put a, a bow on this subject like this. It is a good and healthy thing for Christians to be regularly, consistently called to consider the authenticity of their professions of faith. Now, the most pressing question for you this morning is how can I know that my profession of faith is real, right? If everything that I've just said is true, then the thing that matters most for you, the individual member in the pew, is, well, Sean, shoot, how do I make sure that I'm not deceived? And Jesus answers that. He answers it in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Go back to John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me, that is truly follows, will not walk in darkness. You can also look at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you come up to me after the service and you say, Sean, praise God, man, when you said that thing in the sermon, Right, Everything clicked into place. I really think I understand the gospel now. I think I've been converted. I'm a Christian. I'm going to say, praise God. You are a Christian if you abide in his word. You see, it's not hard to say that you're a Christian. Anyone can do it. You can do it at the point of a sword. You can do it under sociological pressure. You can do it for financial incentives. You can do it because your wife goes to this church and 
man, you, you're not really on board with all this Jesus stuff, but you really want to spend time with your wife and you don't really get to see her that, meet, that much during the week and Sunday morning. You can profess to believe in Jesus for a bunch of reasons and it's not hard at all, but abiding in your profession, walking in the light, you can't fake that. And so Jesus says, how can you know? Well, just ask yourself, are you in the light? Jesus is saying the same thing in verse 12 and verse 31. This, this walking language and abiding language, it's just the language of living. The point is simple. If you say that you love Jesus, you should live like it. I'm not saying you should be perfect. There has only been one perfect person. That was Jesus. But you should basically look like you belong to Jesus. You should look like you're walking around trying to imitate your father. And here's the thing. Everyone always imitates their father, whether they want to or not, whether they realize it or not. You will imitate your father. And if your father is Satan, that will be proven. If your father is Jesus, that will be proven. So what does it look like to walk in the darkness? Well, Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 13. He says this, Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Right? So you're a warrior walking down the road to, to battle. What does it look like to walk in this, this road with light on it? He says, we walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but rather we put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So are you in the Lord Jesus? Answer, well, it depends. Are you in the light or not in the light? Well, how do I know that I'm in, the, I'm in the light or not in the light? Well, are you making provision for the flesh? In, in that section we just read from Romans 13, Paul kind of gives us three categories of walking in the darkness. The first category is the, the orgies and drunkenness. That's, that's big, public, flagrant, rabble-rousing kind of sin. You know, that's partying in the clubs, you know, heading to Miami this weekend or whatever. I don't know. And then this is the lowest possible threshold of, like, godliness, right? Like, at least I'm not out, you know, robbing people and killing people and partying and all that stuff, okay? Then there's the next level. This is the level of sexual immorality, right? These, this is the sin that we usually try to keep hidden. It's darkness that we try to keep in the dark. It's sin that lives in the shadows. And then there's quarreling and jealousy. I think Paul is trying to give us the category of like respectable sins, sins that we kind of tolerate, you know, sins that maybe you've experienced uh, in some of your time in churches, Christian churches. Now, here's the thing about this kind of categorization. It can easily lead to self-justification, right? You say, well, drunkenness and orgies, not doing that. I'm good to go. To which Paul would reply, yeah, but are you making provision for the flesh with sexual sin? Maybe I should just ask our congregation this morning. Are you making provisions for the flesh with sexual sin? Seriously. Are you cheating on your husband or wife? Are you on a dating app? Are you swiping right? Are you taking advantage of hookup culture? Just kind of keeping that hidden? If you're dating someone, are you, are you sleeping with them? 
and you just haven't told anybody, you've tried to keep that part of your life secret? If so, you're walking in the darkness. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I will. So here goes. If you really and truly want to make sure that you are walking in the light, you need the local church. You just do. The local church is the manifestation of the light of Christ on earth. The world that we live in is shrouded in darkness, and every local church is like a lamppost shining the light of God down into the midst of darkness. All the things that keep us in the light, that help us to abide in the light, are things that most naturally and consistently happen in the local church. Regularly confessing sin most regularly and naturally happens in the local church. Building relationships with people who are personally invested in your holiness. That's the church. Regularly sitting under the all-revealing light of God's word. That's what happens in the church. Being involved in meaningful, 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 meaningful discipleship relationships where you actually open yourself up to people, where you're not just living in a, you're a member of the church, but you never talk to anyone, never spend time with anyone, never confess to anyone, never help anyone. I'm talking about meaningful discipleship relationships where people can get close enough to you that they can see into the shadows of your life. That most naturally and consistently happens in the church. I understand that these things can happen outside of the church. They can happen in various Christian ministries. You can feel like you're having the sitting under the preaching of the word happen by watching people online. My argument is that these things all coalesce. They all come together. All the atoms of these things come together to form molecules most regularly and naturally in the local church. Think about how important that is. Think about what happens if you're doing all these things that I've just said, confessing sin, meaningful discipleship, sitting under the word. Think about if you're doing all these things, how hard it is to live in the darkness. I mean, you're going to have to really, really, really want to be living in the darkness. Conversely, think about if you're not regularly doing all these things, how easy it will be to just make your home in the shadows. Now you might be saying, well, Sean, I'm not a member of a church and I think I'm in pretty good shape as I evaluate my life. To which I would reply, you're a terrible judge of your own life. Right? You think you're your best accountability partner? You, yourself? You're the one who's going to give you a pass on sin. You're the one who's going to Tell yourself, you know, shoot, it's actually not that bad here in the darkness. I kind of get used to this. It's possible that you've gotten comfortable in the darkness. That's possible, right? We're highly adaptable creatures. We can get used to almost anything, but Jesus tells us in this morning's text that to be in the darkness is to be enslaved. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, that's the same language, anyone who abides in the darkness, anyone who walks in the darkness, anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. 
Jesus says that we all need to be set free. He says that sin is a slave master. And just because you've grown accustomed to your chains does not mean that you are free. And the good news of the gospel that Jesus is broadcasting to the nations, even to this room this very morning, is that you can be free. You can be truly free. And I want you to understand my emphasis on that word truly. You can have true freedom. Why do I emphasize that word true? I'm emphasizing that word because we are so used to being slaves that we actually don't know what true freedom is. Modern man has such a dim view of freedom that we think hookup culture is freedom, right? The ability for me to have sex with anyone I want to, whenever I want to, however I want to, we call that freedom. As if living in constant fear of STDs and unwanted pregnancies is freedom. As if having to live with the shame of abortion is freedom. We live in a culture where we tell three-year-old children that they're free to choose their own gender, As if telling a three-year-old that they have the responsibility to shape their own identity is freedom. It's not. It's the worst, most terrible bondage you could ever put on a child to say, I'm not going to form you, you're going to form yourself. We live in a culture that says my ability to not be with my spouse anytime I don't want to be with them is freedom. I can just get a divorce, no fault divorce at that. Anytime I please. Ask the 55-something-year-old man who has lost everything if he feels free. Ask the children of divorce what they think about their parents' freedom. The freedom to divorce your spouse and ruin the lives of your children is not freedom. It's slavery. To be free does not mean, contra your American instincts, that you possess the liberty to do unmolested whatever you want, whenever you want. Friends, we are Christians. We are not libertarians. That doesn't mean libertarians don't ever say anything right. They do. But we are not fundamentally libertarians. We believe that true freedom means that we're free to be who God has called us to be, which has boundaries. It has limits. And those boundaries and limits are good They cause us to flourish, and we can only be free when we recognize the right boundaries and then choose to live within them. We're only free when we choose holiness. Friends, the world is full, full of people trying in a thousand different ways to pull the bait and switch on you. Do you know that? They're saying, hey, look at this. See this right here? This is that freedom you want. And I got it. Just take it. Just take it. It's going to be good, man. It's going to be, oh, the church, they're trying to do what now? What did they tell you? What does God want you not to do? Come on, man, take this. But 2 Peter 2.19 is clear. Listen to what he says. He says, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Misery loves company. They're enslaved. You're free. They hate you for it. They want you to join them They offer you false freedom, and God stands before you and says, no, don't go there. Look look at Jesus. To know him, to believe in him, to be united to him, to be in his service, that is freedom. Now, as we close, 
we all need to know that one day the kingdom of heaven will fully and finally break forth into this fallen world. And when it does, all darkness will be shut out of it. All of the darkness that this wicked world has in it will be crammed down into the bowels of hell where the glory of God and all of its light will not enter. It's going to be crammed down into the place reserved for those who saw the light, hated the light, and rejected the light. They said, we want darkness, God, and God says, okay, 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 you can have it. But the good news for all those who are not found dead in their sins, all those who love the light, is that one day the light will finally and fully break forth. Listen to how it's described in the book of Revelation. The glory of God will give its light and its lamp will be the lamb. Jesus is the light. (laughs) Jesus, the lamb of God, is the lamp of God and by his light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But... Nothing unclean, no darkness will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let me pray. Father God, if any of us know you and belong to you and have been freed from sin and united to you, It is only by your grace. But that doesn't mean that it's not amazing. It is so amazing, God. We are bowled over by you. We are blown away by what you have done to free us from the chains of darkness and bring us into the glorious light of your Son, Jesus Christ. And now, God, help us with one voice and with one mind and with one heart to respond to this truth with sincere praise. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.